You may be seated. As always, uh, if you have version, you'll be way ahead. You'll have all of my notes there, and I'm just going to move these wires because I'm probably going to trip and fall off the stage today. So when I do, nobody laugh at me, okay? It's not nice. Uh, when, I, when I introduce, when I meet a stranger, uh, whether I'm traveling or, or just about town, I meet a stranger and I introduce myself. I normally will introduce myself as Bobby Harrell. Uh, if I check into a hotel, I always say, I have a reservation, Bobby Harrell, or rental car, whatever. Uh, if I say Harrell, they'll never spell it correctly. And I think probably it should be pronounced Harrell, honestly, but my ancestors messed that all up. So we're, we're kind of, Susan and I are kind of going back to the Harrell saying, <clears throat> because it just, it's how we should introduce ourselves. When I introduce myself, I rarely introduce myself as a pastor. One of the things I've learned in all these years is that's conversation killer. So, Alan, it'd be very similar for you, like when you sit down next to someone and said, hi, I'm a police officer. And immediately they're thinking, do I have warrants? Do I have unpaid tickets? Do I, you know, did I jaywalk on the way to where I'm at right now? <clears throat> uh, so, and I've learned that that's kind of, that's not the first image I want someone to have of me is not what my calling is. Right. I, I really want people just to know me as a human being. Amen. Does that mean, I, don't, I hope that makes sense. I just want them to know me. Not what I do vocationally or not what my calling is, but I just want them to know a man and meet a man and, and, and get to know a man who, who may be very much like them. And if I say I'm a pastor, immediately something triggers in people's heads and they say, this guy's nothing like me. And he's probably going to judge everything that I do and everything that comes out of my mouth. And so this wall, I can just feel walls go up in conversations. So I've never introduced myself as a pastor unless it's one of your friends who you're bringing to church. And obviously pastors, the context they want to meet me in. But what I'm trying to say to you, maybe not very articulate in saying it, is how do you introduce yourself to others? How do you want to present yourself when you introduce yourself to, to a stranger. Let me ask it a different way. What do you want people to know about you in the first five minutes? When they first encounter you, what do you want them to know about who you are in those first few minutes? Now, Pastor David started a sermon series where we were talking about we eat too much sugar. I saw a study on the news this morning, early this morning when I was watching the news, that said a scientist in France has just done a test study and that chocolate chip cookies are as addictive as cocaine. But I'm going to guess you've rarely in your church experience heard your pastor stand up and speak against chocolate chip cookies. Amen. Because he knows that's a church killer. It's a guaranteed way to split a church right there is to preach against chocolate chip cookies. We've been very quick to preach against maybe alcohol or drugs or maybe even prescription drugs or illegal drugs or uh, tobacco or things like that, but we've been very slow to deal with our own sins of gluttony, laziness, out-of-shapeness, carb addiction, sugar addiction, fast food addiction. Listen, there's a million ways not to take care of the temple of the Holy Spirit other than smoking cigarettes. And so it seems to me just a little hypocritical to preach against people smoking cigarettes and saying you should take care of the temple when we go to the average Baptist church or the average evangelical church and, you know, three-fourths of the congregation is 100 pounds overweight. That just seems a little hypocritical, doesn't it? Go ahead. You can weigh in right here. It just seems a little like we're not being really fair 
in how we're assessing our own situation. So we decided to be great as we got into the cool weather here and leading up to our own nonprofit race just to talk about, hey, none of us are in as good a shape as we should be, even the best of the healthy people here. So let's just kind of use these next few months as a moment to say, hey, let's take the kids and go to the park instead of watch TV. Does that seem like a cool thing to do? Let's load the preschooler up in the, in the stroller and let's go walk around the block rather than just play another video game this afternoon. Let's just get our bodies moving because there's a good benefit from that in being healthy and being family and working on our relationships and working on who we are. This morning, I want to shift the conversation just a little bit. And I want to talk a little bit more about mental health and uh, uh, lead into spiritual health because of that. But I want to ask you this assessment of question this morning. And this is really the question I want you to answer in the next 20 or so minutes. Who am I? Who am I? If you were to write down for me a few sentences that described who you are, what your self-image is, what you want to portray to the world, would you say that, you know, I am, I am optimistic or I am pessimistic or I am just cynical? This is church. You can be honest here, okay? It's a safe place to be honest. Would you say about yourself, I am filled with hope? Or would you say about yourself, I am usually hopeless? Would you say about yourself, man, I see the future as bright. And so, I, just, I can't wait to get up tomorrow to see what this week is going to hold. and what, what's gonna, Or would you say about yourself, I dread. I dread tomorrow because I don't know what my tomorrow holds. Would you describe yourself as, I am... Successful or I am unsuccessful? I am smart or I am stupid? What I'm asking this morning is what kinds of things are you saying about yourself? I am rich or I am poor? I am old, I'm young, I'm old but I feel young, I'm young but I feel old. Uh, uh, What kinds of things do you say about yourself? I am loved or I'm unloved. What kinds of things go through your your head? Now, the reason I want to challenge you to answer this question, who am I, is because if you don't find the answer to this question where I'm going to suggest you find it this morning, if you don't come to an answer or answers for this question, then others will answer this question for you. Hang right, right here on what I'm saying. If you can't answer the who am I question, other people will attempt to answer it for you. And other people will tell you who they think you are or who they think you should be. And this process of others speaking into our life and answering for us, this process begins when we are young. Begins when we're children. People start speaking into their lives who they think we are. And so you go to school, and by the time you're in your elementary grades, you're the funny kid. And if you're the funny kid, then you, if that's what they call you, then you know what you try to be. And so you just feed off of that. Or maybe you're the chubby kid. (laughs) So honesty in the house of God, Alan, I love this. 
transparency. It's like we're in small group, you and I, right now. We'll just go that way the whole sermon, okay? Or maybe you're the chubby kid, Alan. And so when you're the chubby kid and they say, hey, we're going to have a hot dog eating contest, what do you do? You sign up and say, I'm going to crush this. You feed, you feed off of who people are saying your identity is. Or if people say you're the athletic kid, then you're expected to be the athletic kid. And you'll strive to be everything athletic in the school and letter in four different sports. And somebody then will call you the artsy kid. And what will you do? You'll work like crazy to turn in the best art project or to be the most creative. Or you feed off of who others are speaking into your life that they see you as this and, and therefore you try to become that. Now here's the issue. Listen to what I'm saying. People who don't even know you are trying to give you input on who they think you are. People who do not even know you at school, at work, are speaking into your life and saying, here's what we see you as. Here's who you should be. Strive to be this. And eventually, while you're in those grades, you begin to say, okay, where do I fit? It gets more complicated. Now you get to junior high, intermediate, middle, and high school. Things get really confusing in the matter of discovering who we are. Because now you go to different schools, now you're merged in with kids from other schools, and now, now it's a whole new game in the middle, intermediate, and up into the high school. Now there's all these new relationships coming into your life. Now there are new voices speaking into your life about who you are, new responsibilities coming to your life, and more people who don't know you are, are, are looking at you and saying, here's who we see you as. And you're asking, am I part of the in crowd or am I on the outside looking in at the in crowd? Where do I fit in with the people in my social circle? But in a few years, something magical happens. You graduate from high school and then you're going to go off to the the university and, and you get to reinvent yourself. Now this reinventing yourself, this is a magical moment and and. Man, I would love to just have all the, all the 18 and 19, 17, 18, 19, you just sit at my kitchen table and let's love on each other for a while and let me coach you up about this moment of your life. Because when you get to 17, 18, and 19, you're about to have a magical moment that comes very rarely in life. You're going to go off to the university and you get to reinvent yourself. You realize how rare those moments are in life. But you get to decide now when you go away, will I go to church or not? Nobody's going to make you. You're going to decide. Am I going to be in a relationship or not? What kind of student am I going to be? What am I going to pursue? What, What is the course of study? What is the direction of my life? I get to tell people all, I have a fresh blank slate when I step on the university campus to tell people, I am an engineer. (laughs) I am going to be a school teacher. I am going to be an entrepreneur. You get to decide and you get to reinvent yourself for the world, you get to get a whole new set of friends, but you graduate, and now you hit another identity crisis. You go out into what we call the real world, you leave academia and go out into the real world, you're supposed to be an adult, but you're asking yourself, am I ready for everything that's about to come at me? I've been kind of in a safe environment now, but now I've got to go out there and really perform in the business world and there's not lots of do-overs and there's not lots of, uh, it's changing. Am I really ready for this? Where will I work? Where will I live? 
with whom will I have relationships with, and that identity is continuing to develop. Then the thing happens to us when we get to this point in life that our identity becomes our career. Now, I think this is where probably a good majority of you are this morning. Your identity becomes your career. As your career begins, your career wants to completely consume your identity. So that when somebody says, hi, it's good to meet you, you say, I'm a pharmacist. Hi, it's good to meet you. I'm a school teacher. Hi, it's good to meet you. Suddenly, your career is completely consuming everything about your identity. If you let it, your career will become your identity. Well, then you get married and you discover that two selfish people collide together in a, in a relationship and you're trying to figure out how to coexist in a marriage and how, to, how that all works. And, and then something magical happens and, and you begin to have children. And then your identity revolves around your children. Hi, it's good to meet you. I'm Jack's dad. That's my new identity now. I'm Andrew's father. You know, that's, that's your new identity. Your, you, you, your, your identity revolves around your children. And I bet a, a good portion of your week, for those of you who have children, that's most of our church, at soccer games and basketball games and football games and band events, you're introducing yourself as, Hi, I'm Greg's mother. <laughs> that's what you do. So you, you understand how that begins to grab a hold of your identity. Now, here's what I want to caution you. If you've not been to Susan's parenting class, you'll make the classic mistake of letting your child become the center of the universe. And you'll orbit your whole life, your whole identity, and your whole existence around your child. And the child will determine when you eat. The child will determine when you sleep, if you sleep. The child will determine how you spend your money. The child will determine how you spend your time. The child will determine what the family schedule looks like. Everything begins to orbit around the son of the children. Uh, that's the center of our universe. But the problem is they're not going to stay there in the nest. Your children are going to leave the nest. And the whole goal is to get them ready to leave the nest and get them out of the nest and get them to be healthy, functioning adults on their own right. And many, many marriages come crashing down in this moment because the idol has now left the home. The idol that we centered our lives around for 18 years has now left the home. And you've got a mom and dad looking at each other who've lost their identities completely. They've lost their relationship with each other as husband and wife. They're not centered in Christ. And when the idol flies the nest, suddenly the marriage starts to crack and collapse because there's no more commonality in the home that the child's gone. And then you're asking that question again in your midlife crisis. Who am now, what I've just described is the classic struggle to understand who you are and find your identity. Now, the question is so profound and so essential to life that you, you must seek an answer to this question. And the answer that you find needs to be a better answer than the answer that's given to you by people who don't even know you. And those are the people constantly trying to label you with an identity, people who don't even know you, okay? So the answer you're going to come up with this morning has to be better than an answer given to you by someone who doesn't even know you. 
You need an answer that goes far beyond. I'm someone's father or mother. You need an answer that goes far beyond. I'm an engineer or, or an attorney or a businessman. You need, a, you need an answer of identity that transcends these uh, superficial type answers. And what I'm going to suggest this morning is that we find the answer to this question not from people who don't know us or barely know us, but we find the answer to this question from the one who created us. It seems to me that the God who created you knows more about you than you know about yourself. Can we agree on that? You're fearfully and wonderfully made by an incredibly complex God who made an incredibly complex creature in you. And he knows how you're made. He knows how you're wired. He knows how he gifted you by the Holy Spirit's gifts. He knows you better than anyone. And on top of that, other voices who speak to your identity don't love you. They may not even like you. When you listen to God's voice, here's one thing I can guarantee you. He said, Behold, I love you with an everlasting love. I love you so much, Romans 5, 8, that even while you were not cleaned up and nice and kind, when you were still a sinner, I loved you and I demonstrated my love for you by laying down my life on the cross for you. It seems to me that we could listen to the voice of someone who loves us this much this morning and we could push the other voices aside for a few minutes and we could say to God this morning we want to hear from the one who created us we want to hear from the one who really really loves us now before I give you those thoughts let me tell you how those thoughts came to the church at Ephesus now several weeks ago preached a very tough series and I mentioned the book of Ephesus I took you there and showed you the idolatry I talked to you about their their paganism and their worship system and how Paul coached Timothy to plant a church in Ephesus among these people who were coming out of this idolatrous background. Let let me see if I can say it this way. Paul spent two, two years in the city of Ephesus. He made disciples. They planted a church. Lives were changed. Paul then travels on, and eventually Paul's put in prison in Rome. I want you to focus on that for just a moment. The prison is underground. It's a low ceiling. It's all stone. There's one grate. The light's coming through, a little grate in the ceiling. It's just off the Roman Forum, like from here to Beach Street. It's right, Caesar's house is just right there. The prison is right here. And in AD 62, four men went for a prison visit into that jail cell. Four disciples went in there to meet with the occupant of that prison. And after a few moments, those four men very silently made their way back out of the prison and they headed for a port. Their destination was the province of Asia Minor. And each of those four men, while they were in the jail cell, were given something very special. Each of the four men were given a scroll, a letter, a piece of parchment or paper with a letter written on it for different letters, all written by the same author, the Apostle Paul, but four very different letters going to four different contexts in Asia Minor. If those four original letters could be found this week somewhere, somebody digging could uncover these four letters, they would be worth more at Christie's auction than any antiquity has ever sold for in the history of the world. That's how valuable these four letters would be. These four letters contained life-changing truths for the Christian faith. Rome now did not comprehend the value of these letters. 
Rome did not understand really who the occupant was in the prison cell. And had Rome truly understood the value of these four letters, these four men would have been arrested and those letters would have been seized. They would have never allowed these letters to be distributed throughout the Roman Empire because it's going to change the course of human history. As I said, Paul wrote the four letters and when he said farewell to his four disciples, he would never see them again this side of heaven. The four disciples are going to specific destinations, as I said, in Asia Minor. The words on those letters were so valuable that the words would be memorized in totality. The whole letters would be memorized. The words were so valuable that they'd be hand copied from copy to copy. The words on these letters were so valuable that each copy of this letter would be read thousands and thousands of times until the paper literally became threadbare and began to dissolve in the hands of the people who were reading the letters and passing them from one Christian group to another one. And eventually these men and women handling these letters would give their lives, literally give their lives for the words that were written on the pages of these letters. The first letter It's couriered by a man named Epaphroditus. He's from Philippi and he's carrying the epistle or what you know as the book of Philippians in his hand. The other courier is Epaphras. He's from Colossae. Obviously what he's got in his hand is what you now have in your Bible as the book of Colossians. Onesimus is a runaway slave. And he's being told to go back to his slave owner and reconcile and become brothers in Christ. He's carrying the book of Philemon. The fourth courier is Tychicus. He's from the city of Ephesus where Paul planted the church and made the disciples. And Tychicus is carrying in his hand the book that you call Ephesians. And when the letter was read to the Ephesian disciples they begin to truly discover for the first time in their lives what their identity in Jesus Christ really was. No one had spoken to them about this before. And it's all about to be a new revelation to them. And I'm going to invite you just to read a few verses this morning to discover what the Ephesians discovered about what it means to be a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. Because in Ephesians, God begins to define our identity. Let me read Ephesians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now the first thing about your identity that God says is you are saints. So this morning I'm looking at a group of saints. You're saints. Now I don't know what you think of when you think of the word saint. Like you think of like this super spiritual, super holy person venerated by the, you know, European churches? I, uh, what do you, I don't know what you think of. It's hard for me to get into your head. And Do you think of a stained glass window with uh, somebody there and a big gold halo, you know, over their head? By the way, if you travel to Europe, that's how you know they're, they're a saint because they'll have the gold halo over their head in every depiction, which means they've been sainted by the church. But what Paul says to the Ephesians is every born-again person in this room is a saint. Now, l- let me show you what this looks like in the different versions real quick. Pop this up for me, guys. ESV, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God to the saints. Paul, an apostle of Christ by 
Christ Jesus by God's will, to God's holy and faithful people. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God to the saints. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to God's holy people. Now, I don't know how you would define saints, so let me give you the real Greek definition. Sacred, physically pure, morally blameless, ceremonially consecrated, a saint. Let me sum it up. God calls you this morning a holy and faithful person. God calls you a holy and faithful person. Why does he call you that? Because that's who you are. Now, I'm going to begin to challenge you right here. If God calls you pure, that's what this means, then you are pure. It's true. Amen? So then why do you call yourself dirty if God calls you pure? Why do you call yourself bad if God calls you holy? Why do you call yourself something down here when God says, no, you're something up here? You're a saint. You are holy and faithful people. If you're calling yourself anything other than a holy and faithful person, then you're not speaking truth into your own brain. You're not speaking truth to yourself. This is who God calls you. Now, God describes you as blameless and consecrated in this verse. Listen, those are two, two very exceptional words. You've been set apart as something very special to God. Why would you ever tell yourself that you're not special? You are special. You are holy. You are a saint. You are faithful. And your emotional and spiritual health is connected to your self-image. You have to stop convincing yourself that you're something you are not. And we have to stop taking advice from ourselves. We have to stop talking down to ourselves. We have to stop listening to people who don't even really know us, who are trying to define us. And we have to tune that station out, and we have to tune this station in. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. You're going to pull down the things that are not true. And you're going to put up what Christ says is true in your life. And say, I adhere to this. I am a saint of God. Which means I am holy and I am faithful. Let me phrase it to you this way. I think these are my best words. You're not who you say you are. You're who God says you are. Can we agree on that? He's the authority. If you want to be healthy then you have to align your view of yourself with God's view of you. In other words, you pull down your imagination and you say, God, you said it, it's true, and I believe it by faith. Well, let me just go a little bit further quickly. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. The second thing Paul told them about their identity and what I want to tell you about your identity is you're a blessed person. You are a blessed person. And I don't want to belabor this point because I think you've already got it. Uh, Alan, we need to start practicing this as Christians. Hey, how are you today? Oh, I'm blessed. Thank you for asking. We need to get all of that, well, I'm terrible, well, my life is ending, well, my world's over. No, it's not. You're a saint. You're a child of God. And God has called you blessed. So is it true? Then quit telling yourself you're not blessed. You are blessed. 
We're going to have to put into our mouth and into our mind what God says is true about us. You are blessed. So what I might say to you, let's do it again, Alan. Hey, man, how are you? When you say, I'm blessed, I, I, may, I may ask you a second question then. Well, what do you mean by that? How are you blessed? Okay. See, did you see the conversation doors wide open now, Alan? Well, I'm blessed because I've got a wife who loves me. And I'm not that lovable. Okay? I've got kids who are turning out to be pretty good human beings. You know? And we weren't always that good of role models. Oh, I'll tell you how I'm blessed. I belong to a wonderful church family who pray for me and love me and invest in me. Let me tell you, I'm blessed. I got a pantry full. Let me tell you, I'm blessed. I got clothes in my closet. I got 20 pairs of shoes. I had to sit there and look at them all this morning and decide which pair I was going to put on. Went to my old favorites. (laughs) Just need one, but I got them there to give me comfort, I guess. I don't know. I'm just saying, can you not, what's the old hymn we used to sing, count your blessings, name them one by one? Maybe it'd be good for us this week to go back to that and take out a piece of paper and just sit down and say, if somebody asks me, how are you doing? And I say, I'm blessed. And they say, what do you mean? Here's 47 answers I can give. I'm blessed in these different ways. You know, I'm blessed because I live in a free country. I can say what I want. I have the right to vote. I have the right to elect my own leaders. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm just, I'm blessed. I, you, you could come up with so many answers. Look at verse number four here. Even as he has chose us and him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Let me phrase it, you're chosen. If God says, I chose you, then you're chosen. You know, there's something very fulfilling about saying, okay, uh, Damon, you're a captain, and, and Johnny, you're a captain, let's pick two teams. You know what the most fulfilling thing is in childhood life? For Johnny, to, Johnny, you've got first pick, and Johnny chooses Carrie. It's so fulfilling to, for Carrie to be able to say, what's the I must have skills. You know what I'm saying? This person sees something in me that they chose. They found, Johnny found value in me because he chose me. There's something very powerful about being chosen. And God says to you and I this morning, I have chosen you. You have self-worth this morning because God chose you. Now, I don't know everything God was doing before the creation because we don't have lots of information on that. But one thing I do know is God was thinking about you. Before the creation, God had already thought of you. Because the Bible says you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before you were even born, God knew you would be born. And God said, I choose to love you. And I choose for you to be a part of my family. And when you received Christ as your Savior, you were simply responding to a choice that God had already made before the world was even formed. Let me say it this way. We have two wonderful boys Listen, before those boys ever made an appearance, before they ever showed up here in human birth, we had already decided we were going to love them. We already decided they were going to be our boys. We chose to love them, to give them a home, to give them an inheritance, to give them a name, to give them a family. We said, we choose you. You're going to be a part of us. Doesn't matter how you look. Doesn't matter how you behave. We're going to give you unconditional love. That's very essentially what God did with you also. He's chosen you. He chose to love you. He said, I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to call you my children. I'm going to give you a home. I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you a purpose for living. I choose you. That's just powerful. Let me say it in a way maybe that will be even more understandable. When you get rejected by someone this week at your job interview... 
or when you get rejected at your date proposal, or when you get rejected in your business proposition, or when your banker says, no, I'm not going to give you the loan for this crazy idea, or when, whenever you experience rejection in real life, do not let that just devastate your world because you've already been chosen by the real person that matters. God's already said, I love you and I choose you. Let me go a little bit further. The last half of verse 4 says, holy and blameless. God has called you holy and blameless. Now, if I took a poll and said, how many of you feel holy? I know none of you would say that. You wouldn't be so arrogant to say, as well, I'm like the you know, spiritual king of the world. No, we don't feel holy, but you are holy. Listen, if Christ has paid for your sins and you've transferred your faith to his sacrifice, he's forgiven your sins and proclaimed you to be righteous. You are holy. And he calls you a holy nation, a generation of kings and priests. He has very high ideals of you. So he calls you holy and blameless. Let me jog your memory back to when we taught through the book of Romans. Do you remember what Paul said about being blameless? Let me remind you. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. No one can condemn you. Now, even if they could accuse you, they can't carry out the execution because your sentence has already been paid for by Jesus Christ. So Paul goes on to write, what should we say? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, and he's already justified us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. He's the one who was raised and who sits at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, and he calls you blameless and holy. You are blameless and holy. That's what it means. Now, when your own brain says to you, I'm just a worthless sinner, this is the thinking we've got to get rid of. You're not a worthless sinner. You're a saint who's been chosen and redeemed and declared blameless and holy before Almighty God. Now, it's good to be humble and to remember where you came from. Paul does this a lot in his writings. But it's not good for us to constantly tear ourselves down and say we're worthless trash. You're not worthless trash. Christ valued you very, very deeply. Matter of fact, let's read verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So what this means is your family. Your family. You're you're not just chosen and you're not just... Your family to God. Now that means a whole lot of things that I don't have time to explain this morning. But you just let your imagination run wild. Family gave me a name. Family gave you a name. Your family. Okay? That's why the book of Revelation says even in the future God's going to give you a a new name. It's coming. That's indicative of your special connection to him listen that's you know what family gave me a story i'm connected to a story now i say it another way family gave me history i can tell you about my ancestors i can tell you about the people who loved me the people who raised me the people who cared for me tell you what family gave me it gave me traditions it gave me some experiences to buy into and to connect to. It gave me some roots. Is that fair? It gave me some foundation for my life. God says, I've called you family. Let me go a little bit further. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The old KJV says, accepted in the beloved. You're accepted. 
Now, I wish I had a lot of time, and I'm just about out now, but we have such a strong desire, you and I do, to be accepted that we will often misbehave in order to be accepted by a group of people. This is what our misspent youth is all about. Amen? So why did we do those ridiculous things we did? Oh, I, I, can, I know why we did them. We did them because we were trying to fit with a group of people. And we thought by being like them or being like this that they would look at us and bring us into their group and give us acceptance into their circle because we were doing things that they thought were cool or hip or, or, or what, whatever. And this morning what I want to remind you is that you're accepted here in the church of Jesus Christ not because of conformity of behavior. We don't say to you, well, we'll accept you if you all do the same things as we do. That's a very broken model, and maybe some churches use that shouldn't. But you're accepted here in the church of Jesus Christ for one reason, because Christ has accepted you. And he's accepted me, and he's accepted all of us, and therefore we all get into a room. Now, we're nothing alike. We have all different backgrounds and different family stories and different vocations. And we come from all different kinds of stories. But what we do have in common is we're all family and we're all accepted right here. And God has made us accepted because we put our faith in Christ. You now belong. You don't have to earn your way in here. If you're in Christ, you belong at Cornerstone. You're accepted among God's people. And by the way, I want to challenge you. Never stop, stop accepting people. Now, it doesn't mean you can behave however you want to behave. It just means you're accepted. That's all. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. I think I'll have to stop with this one. In him we have redemption. Redemption means I am redeemed. Now, let me do it in plain English. The word redeemed simply means purchased, bought back. I am purchased. I am redeemed. I am bought with a price, Paul said. You guys know what that price was? Let me talk about value again. You've been bought with a high price. Value is what someone's willing to pay for something. So now in the workplace tomorrow, whatever public demands, that's what we pay. Whatever demand drives value, what are people willing to pay for a commodity or for an item or for a service? You know, people want a hole drilled, they're willing to pay a certain amount, and that's the amount you charge them. People want to move their offices You say this is the going rate and people pay it for you to ship their company and and, and relocate them. You know, I mean, people want their children educated. You're probably not paid near enough, Damon, as an educator or or Letty. But there is at least a rate that's established that says we value you this much and we pay you and we give you retirement benefits because we see value in what you do for our families. Now, here's what I want to say to you in closing. Do you realize what your value is? What was someone willing to pay for you? (laughs) Let me say it another way. Your value is equal to the life of Jesus Christ because that's the price that was paid for you. Do you realize how much God values you? What a price tag he put on you? He said, I love you enough that I'm willing to send my only begotten son to die for you. He's willing to give his own life for you to suffer and die for you. That means that God has put a value on you and I that you and I really haven't even comprehended yet, have we? Still haven't comprehended it. Because we don't value ourselves as much as God values us. We're talking ourselves, I'm just worthless trash. I'm just a sorry old sinner, you know, saved by grace. But the key words are saved by grace, so you're no longer a sorry old sinner. 
See, saved by grace means God laid down the life of his only son so that you could be born again. You're not invaluable. You're incredibly valuable. Now, the reason I'm saying all this to you is because when you understand who you are, it affects how you live. It affects what, challenge, what risks you'll take in life. It determines how you will behave, how you'll square your shoulders and go out into the world this afternoon and say, listen, I'm God's child. <laughs> listen, I'm valuable. I'm chosen by God. I am loved by God. It's not about arrogance. It's about just understanding in my core being who I am. Let me remind you, you're not who you think you are. You're who God says you are. The truest things about you are not the things you say about yourself. The truest things about you are the things God says about you. That's why we open the Bible and read through Ephesians. Because God starts saying you're saints, you're adopted, you're loved, you're valuable, you're chosen. And when you see what God says about you, you need to start dismissing some of the nonsense you're telling yourself. And replace it with God's vision of you and start living up to those concepts, those ideas that he had, those ideals that he has for you. So let me close with this. How can I be certain? How do I know this is really true? Well, I'm just going to go down a few more verses for sake of time. And let me read to you this, Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you hear truth, and it's talking about the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, in Jesus Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You say, Pastor, how can I know for sure? How can I be certain that these things are true? Well, simple. God's already made a deposit on it. You see, when I go to a hotel to check in, they'll say, uh, uh, sir, or when I call or when I get on Expedia, they'll say, can you give us a credit card for a deposit? The deposit guarantees that I'm going to show up. Does that make sense? Or you go to buy a house, as many of you have done recently, you young couples, and they say to you, okay, listen, we've got 100 people looking at this house. Man, if you want it, okay, good. We're going to accept your price. Put the earnest money down. And you've got to cut a check to show them that here's how serious I am. I'm willing to put money at risk, a deposit at risk of loss, and I'll put it here and staple it to the contract to prove I am dead serious about following through with everything I just said. God used two special words to describe the Holy Spirit. Here are the two words, promised and guaranteed. <laughs> promised and guaranteed. Uh, we've got a, a, a bumper crop of what looks like weddings about to take place. And Laura, when your future husband proposed to you recently and uh, opened a, a fuzzy little box and inside was a beautiful ring and he gave you that ring and you said yes and he put that ring on your finger, that ring is right now available for you to wear. You probably have it on right now, don't you? Yes, you do. And uh, uh, you wear that ring and everyone who sees that ring sees the promise of marriage in your life. Now, it's not yet happened. We've got a few more months. Not yet happened. But you're wearing the ring that says to the whole world, it's going to happen. You better bet your life it's going to happen. 
You say, is it really? I've got the promise right here on my hand. I have the ring to prove it. And listen, when you put the promise of marriage on your hand, it makes you feel a certain set of emotions. Unlike anything ever in life will make you feel. When that ring goes on your finger, it brings you comfort. That dating is now in your past. That's always a good thing. It brings you joy. It makes you feel emotions like, wow, someone chose me. I chose them. That's special. That's chosen. That's blessed. That's value. And when you put that ring on your finger, it makes you live different. Because now you don't live for yourself. Now you live your life also for another person. It changes your future. It changes how you act. It changes how you feel about yourself. And what I'm saying this morning is God has given you the Holy Spirit like that ring on a finger. It says, I'm dead serious about everything I said. And I give you the deposit of my Holy Spirit into your heart. And if you hear him and if you feel him moving in your life, then you know I'm dead serious about everything I have proclaimed to you. This morning, I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. I want to turn this into a prayer for every child of God this morning towards our Heavenly Father. You've thought about a lot of things this morning about your, your life. We're not living our lives for ourselves. We've, we've got that engagement ring, so to speak, on our fingers, and we're living our lives for other somebody, and that somebody is Jesus Christ. This morning, here's all I want to ask you to do. I want you in this next couple of minutes to focus on being who God said you are. I, I don't know what kind of lies you've told yourself. I, I only know the ones that I've told myself. But maybe you've been telling yourselves, yourself something that's not true about who you are. Maybe you've been letting other voices say to you, hey, you're the, you're the chubby kid or the smart kid or the nerdy kid or the fun kid or the artsy kid. Or the... No, listen, those people don't even know you really. God knows you. Those people don't even love you. God loves you. Listen to the voice of God this morning. And start pulling down the false imaginations and thoughts of yourself and replace them with the clear truths of Jesus Christ from his word this morning. You're a saint. You are holy and faithful. You are loved. You are adopted. You have family. You've been chosen by your creator. You are blessed. You're blameless, you're family, you're accepted, you're valuable. That's who you are. That's your real identity. And your life's going to take a whole new meaning when you live out that identity. In this moment, I, I'm just going to ask every Christian, in this moment, just make your prayer to God and say, God, for all of those false things I've listened to, for all those false ideas about myself, for all of my beating up my own self-image, God, I want to ask forgiveness this morning. Clearly, that's not the way you want me to live. It's not the way you want me to think about myself. God, this morning, I'm going to begin the process 
of replacing those old thoughts that are not true with the truths from your word about who you declared me to be. And God, when I begin to feel like I'm not loved and I'm not valuable and I'm not blessed, I'm going to try to replace that thought with one of the thoughts that I heard in the house of God today. God, I want to be who you proclaim me to be. I want to be that person. God, will you help me just as I had to use my faith to receive you as my Savior. I'm exercising my faith right now to accept who I really am according to your word. God, help me to live up to this great picture that you have for me. God, I want to be who you, who you think I am. God, I want to live up to that. That's who I really want to be, and it's who I really am in Christ. Help me to act it out. Help me to live it out now. Father, thank you for bringing us into the house of God today. Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, my prayer is at the end of this service, they'd come and ask. Let one of us lead them to that saving faith, that understanding of what it means to be a child of God. God, for every Christian here this morning, Lord, help us with this process of replacing our bad ideals and thoughts with yours. Lord, let this week be much better for us as we live out these thoughts we've heard in the house of God today. Lord, thank you for making us accepted in this place. Thank you for a group of people who love one another. This is the mark of discipleship. This is the mark of being a follower of Christ. Lord, would you please just generate that over and over and over again in other people's lives here in this place. Lord, this is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's go home with a song in our hearts, with lots of joy in our hearts this morning. I'll meet you in the back. If you need shoeboxes, come and get them. Get two or three or a hundred. Sign up for the race on the way out this morning, okay? God bless you. See you next Sunday.